You know, my dad taught me how to fish. When I was a child, he'd take me out on a boat somewhere, on some lake or pond, and he'd set me up with a rig like this. A little bob around the end, usually some live bait. And he'd teach me how to cast out in the water. You know, I love fishing. It's been a while since I've done it. But I love the style of fishing because it doesn't require a whole lot. There's an ease to it. It's relaxing. It allows you some time to just sit and talk and spend time with your loved ones. And I've learned that my mom all loves to fish. She would sit out on the dock with her sisters, even into their 80s. And they'd sit there and they'd talk and they'd laugh and they'd pick on each other all day long, all the while keeping their eye on their bobber. And they would catch enough fish to have a fish fry that would rival the fish camp locally there in South Carolina. You know, some people say this style of fishing is unsophisticated <clears throat> because it doesn't require a lot of skill. But I come by it honestly because I think of my grandmother as a child going out and making her own cane pole, casting out into some pond that she found with her sisters, and catching fish to feed her sharecropping family, a family of a dozen kids. You know, what's interesting about this style of fishing is there's a whole lot of waiting. Waiting for that moment that you hope will come where that bobber goes under the water and the excitement begins. You get to fight that fish a little bit and bring it into shore. But you know, the funny thing about fishing, fish don't want to be caught. So you've got to work at it a little bit. They don't want to be caught on the end of a hook and reeled in and laid down on the dock or on the boat or on the side of, of, the, dock, of the water. They don't want to be caught because they don't want to be pulled out of their environment, out of their, out of their daily lives, out of their fishy space of happiness. They don't want to leave it. You know, one of my favorite fishy stories in the Bible is the story of Jonah. I love it because it's hilarious. There's so much about it that's exaggerated and larger than life. Poor Jonah, minding his own business, and gets a word from God to go to Nineveh, this big city of the Assyrian Empire, the, city, the very city that has caused so much harm to him and all of his people. And so he's called to go there and tell them that in 40 days, God will turn their world upside down. And so his reaction to God is funny. He not only says, eh, not me. He doesn't say, no, I don't think so, God. He runs from God. He goes as far as he possibly can. So he boards a ship and goes to Tarshish, the farthest place in the opposite direction of Nineveh. 
And so while he's on that ship, the sailors begin to wonder where this storm came from. Why is there this massive, huge, larger-than-life storm? Because this guy, Jonah, came on the boat. And so after conversation, Jonah says, it's, it's me. It's my fault. Just throw me overboard and you guys will be fine. So they do. And that's when the big fish comes in and catches Jonah and brings him down. So it makes me ask the question, is God for us, only us, the faithful people? Or is God also for our enemies? Because you know, the problem with Jonah's message that he was told to preach, the problem he had with it was that he knew God. He knows that God is a God of abounding love, of mercy, of, that is slow to anger. And so his concern with that message was the people might actually listen. Those hated people, those ignorant people who were so full of hate, who are so full of the things that Jonah cannot stand and has persecuted him and his people for a long time, might actually believe in God and God might have mercy. You know, it's only after Jonah is in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights and his face is covered in seaweed that he finally says to God, okay, fine, I'll do it. And so the fish vomits him up on the side of the, of the, um, of the land right there in front of Nineveh. And Jonah wipes the fish guts off of himself and goes in and does it. He walks in this city that is three days walk long. So it's, it takes three days to walk across it. And if you look at the Hebrew, it says it's, it's a God almighty big city. That's <laughs> what it's called. And so he walks a day in and he says, I, I imagine under his breath, you know, in 40 days, you guys are going to be turned upside down. And then he walks out. The worst sermon, the worst prophet in the entire Bible. And so everything about this is exaggerated, right? Because in these moments, people hear him. The entire city gets word. He doesn't even walk into the central part of the city. But everyone gets the word. Everyone starts to repent. They start a fast. All the animals are fasting. How? I'm not sure. But everybody is saying, I'm sorry, God. Will you turn away from our evil ways? So God, I mean, Jonah doesn't wait to see what happens. Jonah just goes the other direction. He walks up on a hill where he can see the city from a distance, and he makes himself a little place there. He finds a nice vine to cover him in the shade. And he sits there because he wants to watch that city burn. He can't wait to see the results of God's wrath on the people that deserve it. But yet, his sermon, which is the worst sermon in the Bible, has an exaggerated response. 100% of the people and the king repent and receive mercy from God. Not the results that Jonah had expected. Jonah makes me wonder, what if God 
is the fisherman or fisherwoman? And where the fish? Think about it. God sees Jonah and he seeks him out. He asks for him to do something to deliver a message from God, to place a call upon his heart, and asks him to participate in the redemption of a people. And so God casts that line, and there's no nibble. <laughs> Jonah runs away. But yet, once Jonah is caught, Jonah continues to fight for three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. So I wonder if we're like that, that we run and we struggle and we try to get away from God when God is calling us to something that we don't understand or maybe we don't like. Isn't that often how it is in our relationship with God? Maybe I'm speaking for myself. When we hear that word, when we hear that call, our first reaction isn't, absolutely, I'll do that. When do I start? Especially if that message isn't one that we want to hear. Especially if that message involves our enemies. Yet, God is patient with us. God sits there and waits. God waits for us to get caught. What if God just lovingly reels us in? Lovingly and tenderly, without trying to harm us, catches us and safely removes the hook, holds us gently in his hands, whispers the word to us, and then releases us back into the water. You know, sometimes when fish get caught, they get so mad when they're released, they go all the way down to the bottom and they sit there. They sit there because they're mad and they sulk and they're angry. And isn't that what Jonah did? So I wonder, when God calls us to participate in the message of the gospel, how do we respond? Because Jonah didn't want to preach to Nineveh, and he didn't want to because he knew there was a big chance that God would forgive them. Jonah wasn't able to preach mercy to the people before he experienced mercy himself. It wasn't until God had mercy on him that he finally relented and said, I'll go. So, it makes me wonder, who were the very people that we refuse to imagine that could actually receive God's mercy? Who were the very people that we think don't deserve it? So after Jonah delivers this word of warning to the enemies, to his enemies, to the people's enemies, he leaves and he goes to sit on top to watch. All those people who persecuted him, all those people who were downright evil, 
all those people who just didn't get it, who were selfish, who caused so many people so much harm. He was standing there underneath his shade, waiting for the moment where he could jump up and say, I told you so. But that moment doesn't come because that's not what God's message is. So when he learns that the people all repented, his anger overtakes him. He becomes so angry that he just wants to die. So his anger at his enemy becomes more important than the invitation to join in ministry with God, to join in that ministry of reconciliation and preaching the gospel. So do we become so wrapped up in anger, in I told you so's, in the pointing of fingers, that we become the wrathful ones? The very wrathful ones that we think God will rain down judgment upon? Seems to me that God's message for us all is to participate in ministry. To participate in the ministry of reconciliation with all people. Because it's the very thing that Christ died for, isn't it? Because ultimately, God's mercy and steadfast love is what it's all about.